invite the, those of you staying here to turn with me to the book of Ezra. If you're visiting us this morning, we're in the middle of this book of Ezra that we found to be amazingly relevant for our lives, written so long ago. Today we are taking a big chunk of scripture. Uh, we're going to take the, most of the chapter. I'm going to skip around. We'll read verses 1 through 3, then I'll skip to verse 15, and we'll read to the end there. Uh, you'll see it's a long list of names. Not, we're not skipping them because it's not important. We'll actually find throughout the sermon, I, I hope, uh, that they are very, very important, but we'll skip them for time's sake. So Ezra chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, this is God's word. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was in the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Now verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaniah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for who, Joariah, and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading men, at the place of Casaphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also, Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshuiah, and his sons, Meriah, and with, the, and with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them, and I weighed out to them the silver and gold and the vessels and the offerings for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present, um, present had offered. And I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. 
And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and these vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over their weight of silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, and the son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, and the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, and the son of Binui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and a sin offering, 12 male goats. All of this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, um, for all its parts are useful for training in righteousness, correcting, rebuking. We pray that you would do that today through your word, Father, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ in it and through it, and in showing us that our faith would be increased, our joy would be multiplied, that our love for you would increase. We pray that we would know you and feel you to be very near to us, as it were, speaking the very word of God into our very ears, into our very hearts, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us over these sermons on the book of Ezra, you've noted, along with me, of this theme that is present throughout the book of a second exodus or a new exodus, like the one that Moses and the people of Israel experienced when they fled from captivity in Egypt. Even in our text this morning, there are many indicators of these parallels between Moses' exodus through the Red Sea and here, the exodus, the return of these exiled Israelites. However, there's one important distinction that I haven't clarified or made um, abundantly apparent to you yet. The difference is this, is that when Moses and the people of Israel fled, they fled from a miserable situation in captivity where Pharaoh was so cruel he required of them to make bricks but without straw at the same rate. But now in this second exodus, if you will, they come from Persia, a much more comfortable circumstance, a much more hospitable country, a much more open people to their faith. Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes made their situation a whole lot more comfortable than, of course, Pharaoh ever made for the people in Moses' time. Perhaps this is why these returnees come in three different waves, three different phases, because they're so content in the land of Persia. Why go home to the 
to the place that has been decimated? Why go back to the temple and have to get back to work? They had become too comfortable in Babylonia here amongst the Persians. Ezra, in Ezra 8, tells us how Ezra organized his people that he brought back in the second wave. And he tells us who these people are by name after name after name. And there's two things I want us to pick up from this long list of which we only read a very short portion of. The first is royalty. The second is family in this list. The first two names that show up are uh, priests. They're, They're people that come in the line of the priesthood. And so they want to be clear that the priests are going also to go and to worship God in the temple that is in Jerusalem. The third name is, and it's very muted, and he passes by so quick, it's the name of David, and David's son, Hattush. During the exilic period and the post-exilic period, the Davidic line, the fact that they had royalty in their family in Israel was, was kind of left to the side because their, their leaders, like Zerubbabel, would have been kings, but they're now they're under the authority of the Persian government. So they're, they're more just like governors. They're not full-blown kings like David was. Nevertheless, it is clear here that God is continuing his faithfulness to King David to keep his line going, that though they are under the rule of the Persian kings now, yet it will continue until the one in whom all of the promises of God to David are fulfilled. Of course, when it surfaces in Jesus Christ, as he graces the pages of human history, when he becomes man. So here in Ezra 8, we get a hint that God is not done. Although the Davidic line, the royal line, that God would set up his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, had seemed to be eclipsed. Here it is, right here, going back with Ezra, again, to restore the right worship of God. So royalty. The second thing we see here is family. A long list of names in these first 14 verses to show how God loves to work through families. How God loves to work through generations upon generations. If you compare the list in chapter 2, do you remember that long list? To chapter 8 before us today. They're almost identical. Nearly the same. And what we find is that the same people who went years ago with Zerubbabel, now their family members have also been stirred up and to get up out of their comfort in Persia and to go home, to make this journey home. And we see here that God works through these families, through covenant fidelity. And this is how God typically works. Of course he can work through individuals. Of course he can pluck someone out of a family that doesn't believe in the Lord. And that happens all the time. But more often than not, his saving purposes... His saving grace flows generation to generation. One commentator says, even over the generations, it was particular families that were in the forefront, making the journey back to the land. And so reading between the lines, we may discern here an example of faith in action, transmitted from generation to generation by those families who took seriously their call to raise their kids in the Lord. Here's a good word of hope and encouragement for struggling parents. A word of challenge, too. We are called to raise our children in the love and the nurture and the fear of the Lord. Perhaps you don't know Psalm 78. It's not a very popular one. Well, but verse 3 says this. 
We utter things that we have heard and known that our fathers told us. And we will not hide them from our children, but we will tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. Rewind a little bit further in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. To Deuteronomy chapter 6, perhaps you know well. You shall teach your children diligently. You shall talk to them when, they, when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. The name of the Lord, the love of the Lord, is to be pulsating through our families one generation to the next. This is a challenge and encouragement to Christian parents to be proactive, prayerfully, and persistently presenting Christ to the little hearts of your children, some maybe not so little anymore. There's no such thing as a neutral approach to parenting when it comes to raising a Christian in a Christian home. The, the natural and the supernatural call that God has put on us is to see our kids in those Sunday schools, to see them coming up here to be prayed for, to see them sit in the pews, to hear mom and dad sing and pray, even when they don't understand what's happening. They're watching you. They're watching us and saying there's something different about this moment than any other moment of the week. And we're raising them to love the Lord because God loves to work through generations. Back to our text in verse 15. Ezra checks his attendance list and to his dismay he discovers there's no one from the Levites. Yes, there are priests there because remember priests are Levites but not all Levites are priests. So you got the priests covered at the beginning but you don't have non-priests or you don't have just temple workers as they're described here. Uh, they stayed behind perhaps because sometimes in, in it, exilic history and before they were treated like second class citizens. You're a Levite but you're not a priest. So it was comfortable for them to stay behind and to not go home, to not make this journey back. So Ezra looks to his talent pool there and he says, uh, hey, men of insight, you leaders, um, I'm going to send you back to this town that's teeming with Levites, Casaphia, and you're going to go back and persuade the, the Levites, or at least as many as you can get, and you're going to bring them along with us because we have to have every part of Israel represented, and I don't see any Levites who are non-priests here. Because it is clear, and we're going to see this in a few moments, that Ezra wants to, us to understand that everyone who go back, goes back with him here is representative of the whole of Israel. Of course, not every individual, because there's another wave of, of returnees to come under Nehemiah, but representatively. The level of comfort and prosperity that they enjoyed in Babylon kept them there. We could be hard on the Levites, couldn't we? But as we think about our own lives and the comforts that we enjoy and the things that nail our feet to this earth and the things we become consumed about, our thrills, the fun, even good things like family and children and jobs and degrees and portfolios and relationships, all are tethering us here where the scripture is very clear that we're to put our minds on things above, that our hearts are to be to be oriented in that direction, but the materialism and the luxuries that we have at our fingertips at any moment to make our life easy, to make our life comfortable, make us not that interested about going home. Like these Levites. 
Consider what Hebrews 11 says. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. All these people in Hebrews 11 died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and greeted them, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And people who speak this way are showing that they seek a homeland. They're not going to go back to the land that they had come from. It proves that they desire a better country, a heavenly one. The picture we're to get here as we read this text through the lens of Christ is that they're going home and they're being called home, but they're too comfortable here. And so they have to be persuaded. And at the end of the day, they get 38 Levites and 220 temple workers. Pretty good. Better than in chapter 2. And now... Ezra calls for a fast to humble themselves and to ask the Lord for safe passage on this difficult journey. You know how far it is? Almost a thousand miles on foot. They make it in four months and around every corner there would be bandits and thieves that would seek to destroy them or at least rob them. Think about all of the loot they had, all the gold and all the silver. And so Ezra puts his faith into action here and he says, I'm ashamed to, to ask Artaxerxes for a state-sponsored uh, military envoy to guard us from these bandits because we've already been telling him over and over that our God is for us and he's against our enemies, so we can't ask him for help because we've already told him our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So while he's ashamed to ask the king for safety and security, he's not ashamed to ask God in this prayer. Reminds me of Psalm 20, verse 7. Many of you know well. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That God is going to see us through and bring us home to the end. But is verse 22, look at it if your Bible's still open. Is verse 22 really true? Is it always the case that on our journey home, we're not going to be ambushed by bandits? We're not going to suffer. We're not going to stumble. We're not going to struggle with weakness. We're not going to grumble and complain. Is it really true? The Bible, in some cases and in some places, says the exact opposite. On our pilgrimage home, on that long, arduous journey home, we're going to get all kinds of bruises. We're going to be battered. We're going to be surprised. We're going to be hurt. There's a whole psalm about the wicked seeming to be privileged and the, the righteous to be, to be plundered. Psalm 73. There's a whole book called the book of Job about this. So is verse 22 actually true? Are they guaranteed safe passage? And are we guaranteed safe passage in this scary and fallen world? Well, Ezra knew there was something significant here, something redemptive, something massive that God was doing in the bringing back of these people to their home. So he was confident in the good hand of his God and seemingly and amazingly, they all got there unscathed. But we're not to press this promise and to, as you've heard before, to name it and claim it, right? As if it's a one-to-one -one correlation, as if somehow you can pick out Ezra 8 Verse 22, and build a whole theology of suffering on that. That won't help you. But what we do see in this text and what is guaranteed in this story is that the pilgrims make it whole. Guaranteed. 
guaranteed. If God has his good hand upon you in Jesus Christ, then you will make it home. Be there injury, loss, sorrow, pain, sin, failure, sadness, no person, no situation, no thing, no sin can snatch you from his hand. You might just flop across the finish line, but you'll cross the finish line if you are a pilgrim headed home. So knowing this to be true, Ezra is willing to take some risks. Not reckless ones. He's not foolish, but he's willing to take some risks by not asking for a military entourage. We say Sunday by Sunday, creeds and confessions. We, we confess what we believe in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. It's easy to affirm. But what are we doing? What are you doing? What am I doing? What are we doing that actually puts flesh on our faith, that actually requires faith to actually go do it. What risks, reasonable risks, are we taking in light of the fact that we're, if you're a believer, you're going to make it home? William Carey, the father of modern missions, you know his famous quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Notice the order there. It's very important. It's not attempt great things for God and then expect great things um, from God as if God's going to say, oh, that was impressive. Now I'll do great things. No, expect impressive things from God. And motivated by that, we can press on and do things that we didn't even think were imaginable. It's not just William Carey who says this. It's the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to the work, the power of work that is within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What are we asking him to do? What risks in faith are we taking to go out on our journey home? Then we see in 24 through 30, the preservation and protecting of their precious cargo. Did you see this? They don't have um, a state-sponsored protection plan. They don't have an armored truck. But man, they have a lot of wealth in this caravan. They have about 49,000 pounds of silver and 75, um, sorry, 7,500 pounds of gold in addition to all the vessels. So Ezra sets up his 12 leading priests to take inventory to say, hey, why don't you measure what we have so we make sure that it can get all the way there. And when we get there, and they do, We'll have an accounting and we'll make sure every piece got here. Every pound of silver, every pound of gold got there. And amazingly, by the good hand of their God, it made it there, intact. Who but God could guarantee this kind of thing? The strange thing about this is we know very, very little about this four-month journey. If I were writing this story, I'm sure there were other things you could tell us. But the only thing Ezra tells us here in verse 31 is that God delivered them from ambushes. But what about other challenges? What about those complainers who said we've been walking a long time? What about children who want to go back to Persia? What about the infighting? What about what happens every time you travel? Especially like this. Apparently, it was either uneventful, and this was the smoothest traveling uh, trip ever, and it didn't have any up and downs. Or it didn't matter what happened. 
Because they arrived. That's the point. They arrived. If we were to ask Ezra in heaven, why didn't you tell us more about uh, your trip over? That, that must have been incredible. He would have said to us, didn't you hear me say the good hand of God was upon us? That is enough. That's all you need to know. And didn't you see that they made it? Amazing. So they get back and scrupulously, they audit the inventory when they arrive and everything is declared holy to the Lord. The priests, the temple servants, and these vessels separated for the work of God. And then they're propelled after three days of rest to go worship. They're ready to worship and bring their burnt offerings and sin offerings. After their journey home, they come into the temple, the presence of God, to worship him. I want to point out something here that you might have missed. Did you notice how many times Ezra alludes to the number 12 or gives a list of 12? In verses 1 through 15, if you exclude the two priests and the Davidic line, all the other lay people, there's 12 families. In verse 24, he sets aside 12 leading priests. They depart ultimately on the 12th day of the first month. They sacrifice 12 bulls for all Israel. They sacrifice 12 goats later on. Why? To represent the 12 tribes of Israel, to say all of Israel has been saved. Not as if every individual Israelite went, of course, because again, there's going to be another set of returnees. But here to show us representatively that they've made it and God hasn't lost any of his tribes. It's this yes, but not yet. You know when you go bowling and you, uh, you, you have two turns, right? Your first turn, you put it in the gutter. The second one, you knock all of them down. If you're new to the game, you think you got a strike, but you only got a spare, right? But I knocked them all down. Yes, but that's not a strike. It's a yes, but not yet. Situation is what we find here. The strike doesn't come. The fulfillment, the happiness of a strike doesn't come until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and all that Israel hoped for. We might say that all of Israel's history is one spare after another spare after another spare and the true strike came in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that if you are in Christ, you are engrafted into Israel. Jew and Gentile now made one person in Jesus Christ who he will never let go. The passage leaves us intentionally dangling that there has to be more than this because David's not on his throne until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and sits on the throne at the right hand of God who has come and has died and three days later has conquered their greatest enemy and ours, our sin and our failure on the cross. And he now reigns on the throne of David forever and forever over his people, Israel, redeemed in true Israel, Jesus Christ. We also see that there's more to come here because they're sacrificing. And we await that final sacrifice that can actually cleanse from sin. And then the last thing I want you to notice is in this wonderful little phrase in verse 20. These were all mentioned by name. We didn't skip the names because I would stumble over them and they're hard. I should have read them. But these were specific people with individual names created in the image of God. And God specifically and personally called them on this journey home 
by name, showing us that God is interested in us, God is invested in us, in you by name, knowing everything about you, not just your name, but everything about you, even the things you did last week, even the things you did or didn't do this morning. He knows everything about you. And if you're a believer, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and there's no one erasing it. You will make it home. That's the glorious assurance that comes. No matter who you are or where you've been, you matter to God and he knows you by name through and through. So much so. So much does he know you and love you that he'd be willing to allow his son to leave the comforts of glory, to leave the comforts of his father's side and to come and to redeem exiles, exiled in their sin. And by his good hand and persevering grace, bring us home. Now that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, you tell us that you call us by name. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you and I have called you by name and you are mine. And Lord Jesus, you said the sheep hear your voice and he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. Father, we thank you that for those of us who trust in Christ by no merit of our own, by no skill of our own, by no moral fiber of our own, but all alone in Christ, we praise you that before the foundation of the world, our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, for ours. And Father, I pray that you would speak into our ears our name and further call us home on this journey and fix our hearts and our attention and our affection there until you do so. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.